Hello Problem Busters, it's Jonathan here. We had some technical difficulties this episode, so you'll mostly hear Ollie and not me past the first two minutes. This was a really powerful episode, and Claire has such an amazing story. So without any further delay, let's get it started. Welcome to another episode of Problem Busters. I'm your host, Oliver Happy, here with my esteemed colleague, Jonathan. How are you, sir? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Well, I've just had a few days off in between jobs, so I'm quite, quite relaxed. And I've discovered that when I do yoga, life is great. It's a really simple equation. So, uh, so yeah, I've been really enjoying a couple of classes a week. Oh, that's very nice. I'm at the opposite end of that spectrum. I haven't done yoga in about a month and my lower back is hurting. So I think uh, time to so get between back Between us, we it. are the ideal human. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so on to today. Today, we've got a really interesting guest, Claire Seek. Welcome to the show, Claire. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So first of all, let me just give you a quick intro and then we'll move on to a little bit about you. So Claire Seek is, a, is all about building community for people and planet. Based in Portsmouth, which is a city in southwest England, for those who don't know, um, she is the founder of Repair Cafe Portsmouth, also Green Drinks Portsmouth and a whole lot of other community-based projects besides. So we're really excited to have you here and to talk about all things repairing and not just throwing them away. So let's start with a bit about you and uh, how you came to found the project and, and extend what I believe is a, a global network of, of ideas into the Portsmouth region. Yeah, so um, I guess I started probably campaigning and being interested in kind of environmental things uh, about 12 or 13 years ago now um, I also became a mother at that point um, which I think there are probably some links, links with when you have kids and start thinking about the future that they, they have um, and I've also been someone that's always I'm always determined to do things so like you know any job around the house I'm like of course I can give that a go um, and um that's really kind of led me on an interesting journey, sort of exploring waste and um, plastic specifically within that. But um, as I spent more and more time, you know, on a personal level, um, you know, trying to make our homes kind of good a footprint on this planet as possible, um, it's led me to, to trying to make some of that accessible to, to more people as well. Um, and repair, which is um, the piece I think we're mainly going to talk about, today um is really kind of at the heart of of that of you know walking more lightly on this planet making things last longer um thinking about what we consume uh, what we can maybe share rather than individually owning bringing people together around that so um yeah probably my kids have quite a lot just their their sheer existence has had quite an influence on on where i am today that's so cool and and you've talked quite a lot about that over the years, haven't you, Jonathan? That that becoming a dad changed the perspective. So it was one of those things. I'm someone that's always kind of looking, you know, reading up on different ideas around the world, and um, it was something that I had seen, I think, probably on social media a few times, and 
you know, mentioned it to various people um, and gone, oh, wouldn't it be great if we had one of these in our city? Because it had started in the Netherlands um, by a woman over there sort of years before. Um, and I actually, something popped up on, you know, one of the social media feeds when I think it was something like their eighth birthday. I just thought, oh, well, no one else has done this, you know, but I know there are people out there that are interested in setting something up. And a repair cafe is kind of where you bring people together. So it's got that community element that you bring people together who are good at fixing things uh, with people who have stuff that need fixing and you sit together and you learn, well, give it a go at fixing it. Obviously, we don't manage to fix everything. Um, but it really fitted in with the kind of stuff I was also doing on a neighborhood community level as well. So um, it ticks multiple boxes. And I thought, well, let's just stick it out there and see if anyone else is interested. So um, I was involved in lots of kind of Facebook groups at the time and community Facebook groups. So I set up a little group saying anyone interested in setting this up, posted it on all the um, sites that I knew across the city. And within, I think it was literally 24 hours, I had 200 people either on the group saying, yes, I've got something broken, please, can someone help me? Or, oh, yes, I love this idea. How can we, how can we help um, set it up? And a couple of weeks later, we had 20 people squashed into my lounge diner to kind of make it happen. So the first repair cafe Portsmouth happened in your, in your house? Well, no, that was just the planning one. That would have that would have been really mad to try the first one. Although I have heard some people. I mean, these these take very different kind of shapes depending on the community that you set it up in. Obviously, we're a, a big city. Um, although it's interesting, I don't know how many of your listeners will know, but um, we're an island city. So, um, and one of the most densely populated cities outside of London. And so you've got a lot of people crammed into a a little space. Um, so we kind of plotted, you know, where would be the best place to start this? And we kind of tried to find as central to the island as possible and on, you know, public transport routes and that kind of thing. And, um, and it, but it was only, I think it was like four months later that we, we ran our first one and we were gentle on ourselves. And we just, it was really funny when you first set up, you get lots of people that are good at fixing things, but obviously not necessarily good at fixing everything. So we actually started with people coming along to, to kind of learn the process and how it's going to work but they also brought all their stuff in the house that they hadn't got around to fixing or they wanted someone else with a different skill to help fix and we just fixed each other's stuff for the first one so it was literally in a in a church hall which is where we've met with the exception of covid obviously um ever since which was just over four years ago now um so i mean these happen across the world as i said i, I think there are several thousand around the world now and there are there are different iterations of it as well so um repair cafe is sort of a brand as such but there are lots of community repair groups you know with differing names um for us in portsmouth we so we've been going as i say for about four years now but we're just a pop-up event so um we just hold sort of one or two months events um, one or two month i can't even say that <laughs> one or two events each month um and we've had to really kind of stop advertising because we're at, at capacity so for us what we want to do is take this that step further and actually have a base where we're able to be open you know longer link it in with the concept of a library of things which is where you can borrow stuff that you don't use all the time or those things that for example if you bring a drill along and we can't fix it rather than the default being okay i'll go and buy another one you could borrow one from the community um, and we're also really engaged with the rights repair campaign that goes on around the globe as well. So really calling for changes in the way stuff is made um, and uh, is repairable so that we, 
you know, it's not just about us having a nice time together, although it is a very lovely project. Um, it's about, you know, trying to change the culture as well. And we're just, we're just a small cog in that. Tell us a bit more about the, the right to repair. Yeah, so the right to repair, um, there's people campaigning at different levels. Um, and it's, it's really frustrating, you know, when you spend hard-earned cash on something and when you think of the resources that are taken up in producing that, uh, you know, most of the carbon, for example, with certainly electronic um, objects actually comes from the manufacturing process, you know, before it's even used for the first time. So there's, there's a, a massive impact on the planet as well as, you know, our, our bank balances on constantly having to replace things that break. So the right to repair is a bit different in different countries, but it's really um, focusing on policymakers and manufacturers to make things that, you know, will last longer, that will um, be more repairable, you know, even being able to open objects um, so that you can have a chance of repairing them. Um, things such as providing spare parts for longer, um, providing more information about how things are, are made so that people can repair things themselves. I mean, it's ridiculous when you consider, obviously, we're a naval city, so we have some amazing volunteers, you know, who might have worked on submarines and missiles um, and are very capable of fixing, uh, you know, a TV or a phone or whatever it might be. But because of the way things are manufactured and because of the information and spare parts available, they can't, you know, do that for their own objects that they they have. So it, you know, it's sort of a, a justice issue as well. So the right to repair campaign is very much, you know, lobbying, um, just in the same way as there's lots of manufacturers lobbying our governments to say they don't want to have to repair things. You know, we're grassroots uh, collecting lots of data about what we um, can't repair, um, and. And also, like in the UK, we campaign. So, for example, um, with the Restart Project, there's petitions and we work with, M you know, lobbying MPs um, to talk about things such as tax. Uh, so, for example, you don't get taxed if you repair a luxury yacht, but you do get taxed if you repair any of the normal things that we have in our homes, which just seems mad, doesn't it? Infuriatingly mad. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Certainly, you're, you're absolutely right. So, for example, in France, um, actually nowadays on products, they have a bit like we have like an energy rating on all electrical things. They now have, and you know, on our food, we have things, don't we, that tell us how much salt's in our, the, the item we're buying, that kind of thing. And in France, they have um, a system now that shows you kind of how repairable something is, which means that the consumer can be much more informed and think about, you know, what's it going to cost them? How long is it like to last? And those kind of things. And, um, it's interesting, obviously, in different uh, nations, and now we're not in Europe. Um, so we still work with the European campaign because the reality is products that are made for Europe will still obviously be sold here. But um, the UK government's really not doing well on uh, allegedly keeping up with, you know, I think in Brexit, I'm sure they said they were going to exceed what the EU did. Um, but that's not the case. And um, we need you know, policy to change so that um, whether it's tax, whether it's just what they're allowed to sell into a country, um, you know, so that the customers are more informed. And it is a massive problem on that, you know, the waste perspective. So the UK is um, the second uh, biggest producing country of e-waste in the world. It's only Norway that's ahead of us. And I think we're on track to become the first, sadly, by 2024, with Norway kind of improving what they're doing. Um, 
but we're not. And, you know, the stats are quite terrifying on um, the amount of e-waste that exists. And I think even if you just sat and probably looked at your desk or wherever you're sitting today and thought about, you know, the, the technology around you, you know, for everyone's phones and laptops and tablets, you know, they've often got different chargers and they've got a life expectancy from the manufacturers of maybe four years, which, you know, when you consider most of the carbon, for example, is um, created during the making of that. And if you think of all the resources involved, to have something that only lasts for four years, if you made it to last for 10 years, that has much less impacts on the environment, leads to less waste, um, all these kind of things. Um, so we Why do, do you think the UK is so high on that list for e-waste? Is it because we are quite a wealthy country and people consume a lot? Or do you think there's other factors at play, like you've alluded to the, the, the government policy trajectory? It's interesting. I don't, I don't, I don't honestly know. I mean, in comparison, obviously, to some, uh, you know, poor, poorer countries, there is definitely going to be much more consumption in our nation. We've got a real appetite for the latest gadgets as well, haven't we? Um, and I'm not quite sure, you know, I know Norway is ahead of us and, and we're second, but um, when you just consider um, that appetite, that, that consuming appetite, there is a lot of, of desire to have the latest thing. And, um, and I think that, again, within that as well is going to be the structure for recycling assets, which will be different in different countries. So, you know, the UK is not known for having the best recycling systems um for these things um yeah i don't know i don't, mm -hmm. I don't yeah know it, it all makes sense causes. it's embarrassing though isn't it and it's something that we yeah. that we all need to improve on um yeah, yeah i'm really sad i think um because there is so much linked within our culture as well isn't there around sort of the um the pressure you know i've i've got kids that are heading towards teenage years and you know the pressure to to have the latest thing and the best tech for that and I mean thankfully I think the generations that are coming up are talking much more about sustainability within that um, but yeah there's a lot more that needs to be done to to try and reduce that. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about about what you're seeing um, in terms of the next generations and what they are getting from school and and also just what what they are sharing in terms of their awareness yeah so it's interesting because i've been talking um with a few different projects around kind of what goes on in school um from a sort of curriculum perspective there is very little to nothing uh, nowadays um around the sort of practical skills of repair and in fact i was even having a conversation with someone linked with the sort of university sector saying you know a lot of the um, courses now are actually much more theoretical as well so for example if you wanted to become if you think of our high street you know we'll have sort of bike, bike shops that repair bikes we have um, phone shops that repair phones and we have computer shops that repair computers but actually for most of those you've kind of got to be individuals that just want to get into it or fall into it or sort of have an apprenticeship type of thing there's very little in schools that lead um kids down that as a career path um it's you know it's it's just not massive and it's become less and less in the curriculum but um what i do get hope from is some of the conversations um that i have around sort of sustainability and the environment so actually i've been invited into um a, 
a conference sort of across our school sector in the city um, next month, which is talking to the, the sort of eco groups and the groups in the secondary schools that are looking much more about the environment. And within that, we're talking about, you know, how to, what about e-waste? What about repair? Um, and I think trying to get it into them, instilled in them when they're talking about design and sustainable design and thinking about circular economy and all those kind of things. Um, and obviously, you know, we talk about this whenever we have um, climate marches in the city. We're always a presence there talking about repair. But I think the challenge is it is sort of individual and community groups and, you know, not for profit organisations that are the ones really voicing this. And it's not at this point you know, government driving policy that would bring it. Um, so there's hope, but boy, there's a long, there's a lot more that we could be doing. Um, yeah, yeah. And and so in that context, why is it that our um, next generation is is expressing um, thoughts about the environment and sustainability and urgency? I get that real sort of sense of urgency from from people like Hakim and. Um, Ariana that we've had on before, right, Jonathan? Um, and I, I grew up in a conservationist family um, with lots of campaigning, and I don't feel like I had the urgency that that Hakim shows today. You know, so so why do you think that is, Claire? Where do you think that's coming from, and why are adults not picking that up? Um, I mean, I think there's a real awareness within, uh, you know, large swathes of our young people. There's a lot of stress related to to climate change um you know I, there's a lot of concern literally about their future and you know that's not even starting to talk about their kids future i mean we live on an island we were, i was at talk last night just about sea level rising and the impact it could literally have on our homes and the amount of money that's being spent defending our city from you know the ever-increasing uh water levels and um you know kids are really aware of that and i think they have a very um clear you know, and vivid imaginations on these things. Um, so, you know, at the start, I was talking about um, having kids had really shaped kind of where I've gone to. But I think part of that is also kids wander in the world and they're questioning and they're, you know, you sort of see uh, the world through kids' eyes. And I think that that cohort of young people that are coming up uh, sense that urgency. You know, I mean, when I was at school, I had no idea what a COP conference was, whereas you know, more and more kids are aware of, you know, Extinction Rebellion activity and uh, COP climate talks, um, endangered species. Kids are really passionate about, you know, animals and the fact that animals will become extinct. Um, I've spent time talking about plastics within uh, the sort of junior school sector within the city and kids are really, really motivated, you know, the pester power <laughs> to get their parents to to change how they shop, for example, to reduce plastic and that kind of thing. So I think kids are just really passionate about the world that they've been brought into. But there is that sense of urgency of we can't rely on these grown-ups who are a bit lethargic about it all. Um, you know, we've got to get on and and, and do it. Um, and I think it's really interesting to talk to kids about all the breadth of interest, you know, and careers that they might want to go into that actually there's a part for them to play whatever their career choice and, you know, whatever their passions are in the world. Um, that awareness that, that humans have a massive impact on this planet. It's not just about us, um, which I think is really encouraging. And obviously Greta, I mean, and, and David Attenborough in the UK, you know, both of those have had a, um, a massive impact, I think, on, on children's and young people's 
um, appetite for change and and that sense of urgency. And you know, it just that just makes me want to get young people and put them into um, local and state and national government and bring their urgency into decision making. Yes, but equal, yeah, and knock down some of the the slow, slow uh, processes of government. You know, the absolutely to get the young people shaking things up. And they are the future voters. I mean, that's it's an interesting discussion, isn't it? Just about what age people can vote, because you know, there's certainly some arguments that the younger they can vote, the, the more maybe that their voices would would be listened to by those in power in existence. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. Um, we just started to hint at it, so let's let's take it back to the the repair cafe. So, um, so what what sort of benefits are you seeing from from your bi-monthly get-togethers and and the cafe affecting the community and and the young people yeah repair covers are way more than just um fixing stuff i have to say so i mean we'll often have people joking and saying yes you know can i come along and you'll fix me as well and or can you fix my husband or my wife um but it's an amazing place of um people you know building confidence we've got people that um because it's it's all you know all of us are volunteers um the cafe element means there's endless cups of tea and cake um on offer and it's it's sort of quite a relaxed social environment so we find it's a really safe place for people to come and volunteer and offer a bit of skill um we also have volunteers who aren't fixers but just serving the cake and welcoming people and that kind of thing and so there's sort of a, a home for anyone that wants to get involved which is lovely um we also use it as an opportunity for people to to get more skills. So not only the people who are sitting there bringing their objects. So, for example, most vacuum cleaners that are brought in, there's actually nothing wrong with them. It's the fact that people don't know how to, you know, clear out blockages and all those kind of things. So it's building people's confidence to actually, I can, I can do this and I don't need to just bin it. Um, but we also have people buddying up. So people who are interested in, like, learning how to solder or how to... Um, just understand a bit more about uh, whether it's sewing or electrical work. Um, and we've started to partner with different projects in the city as well. So um, Portsmouth's got um, a, a brilliant initiative called the City of Sanctuary, as we have um, a large number of asylum seekers and refugees. So we link up with them. And, um, you know, at the stage of entry, they're not allowed to work, but they can come and give something back to the community, link in with um, the locals and uh you know that's that's been a really encouraging and um and happy connection point for us um so there's kind of lots of ability to um you know challenge isolation and and it's interesting as well because it's quite a mix although i'm still constantly trying to get more women to come in and do electrical stuff and more men to come and do the sewing stuff i haven't haven't quite managed that yet um but it's a really good environment as well, I think, for people who maybe wouldn't want to just come and sit and chat, but they'll come and tinker. Um, and you end up with some really good conversations off the back of that because you're focused on something else, but life gets discussed around it. Um, so we're often signposting people to, to additional support and, and extra things like that. So it's a really broad, a broad set of benefits way beyond just the environmental and the uh, you know, the, reducing e-waste kind of conversation. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, when we talked the other day, you mentioned 
um, in conjunction with asylum seekers. Um, I think you talked a bit about, was it white goods? Um, and people particularly learning about repairing white goods at the centre? Uh, so, no. Well, we don't do white goods oh, okay. <laughs> because they're insurance perspective. What's interesting is, the, going back to the right to repair, is that there has been some legislation to improve some of that. Um, so things such as, you know, washing machines and, and fridges, There's uh, that's where um, some of the legislation recently has um, been improved on. But, yeah, we don't. I'm going to have to say when I'm trying to fix things, it's a bit of YouTube and... <laughs> There's a brilliant website called I Fix It, although I don't think they quite do white goods, but you know you can fix lots of stuff on that. So um, no worries. And and I remember what it was. It was you, Jonathan. You've got a story about white goods. That's awesome. A washing machine's not cheap either. Um, and and I often think about that. If if uh, there's there seems to be something quite grossly unfair about um, a strata of families go to set themselves up in a in a house or a flat, as the case may be. Um, the wealthier family um, probably doesn't think twice about getting the washing machine and, and things that they need. Um, the family that's more on the breadline, um, proportionally, it's such a high cost to get just the basics to run a kitchen at home, isn't it? And that's like £15 a, a run now, isn't it? So how about the availability of, of spare parts? Jonathan just mentioned it, and... and uh, I've certainly done a bit of the, the YouTubing uh, and Googling as well, Claire, and, and thought, oh, I'll just get another battery for this laptop or this cell phone or whatever it might be. Um, and, and I also found I didn't even know where to start to try and find these parts. Um, and the only thing I could compare it to was back in Australia and New Zealand, um, there's a real um, grey market or secondary market in spare parts for particularly Japanese and Korean cars because those are dominant. Um, so you could pretty much get an indicator light if you drove into a fence, no problem. Um, but, but for electronics over here, I've, I found it really hard. So, so how, how do you think that the, the law changing in the UK last year might change that experience for people who have something break? Yeah, um, so the, the laws really only left it for, you know, some of those larger white goods, which is why there's still definitely a piece to be done. It's interesting you mentioned batteries, for example, if you think about all the e-bikes and scooters that are coming up at the minute, you know, there's lots of talk around how do they make some of them more repairable and have spare parts? Because actually, like, for example, an e-bike, the battery is the most expensive um, element. So, um, but it's really hard to find spare part still so I you know I'm someone who I, I've got kit in my house because of repair cafe for example to fix phones so whenever the kids secondhand phones uh, come a cropper you know I will buy a battery and replace it um, using something like I fix it there's this brilliant guide through but even then kind of like knowing what is a good battery to buy um, because there's a there's a, you know there's ones that you can find from places but you're like how do I know it's any good you know how long is it going to last um and it, it's really hard um to navigate some of that um and there's there's no quick answers at this point although I do you know talk to people who have got more experience and go where do you source yours from um but that's because I I sort of obviously work with some of those individuals um I think there is as well you know that story from Jonathan where you've got 
something that you specialize in so I know sort of lots of the guys who volunteer um, for us might be sort of retired and have a bit of a shed and you know will when things break and they can't replace it they will keep bits and then uh, you know change bits in and and have a little um, treasure trove of pieces but but that requires space as well so when you consider the diversity of uh, phones for example or irons or whatever it might be um having the right spare part um is is still a challenge um there's an interesting um campaign at the moment in europe around charges um and there's some legislation hopefully coming through that will in, enforce the fact that there's some more universal charges um because obviously we all know some of the big companies that love to have with every new model, there's a you know different set of cables or ports or whatever coming out. So, you know, there is more push for all those extra bits as well. But the more we can get spare parts that we can be confident in as well, because the last thing you want to do, like you say, when things are expensive, is replace it with a part that then actually doesn't last and is equally a waste of time. So, yeah. Well, it's interesting... Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, so I, I'm going to plug the Fairphone. So <laughs> Fairphone is a, a manufacturer that it's designed so that me as the owner of it uh, can can open it really simply and replace and, and switch in different components. Um, when you look at other uh, manufacturers, that's just not built into their design. Um, and so um the ability to open something to even have a chance of repairing it can be quite a challenge. So, for example, I mean, moving away from phones, but at Repair Cafe, we'll see hair dryers. Um, now, most hair dryers are kind of literally sealed shut so that you can't because manufacturers see it as this issue that if people can get inside and tinker, they might be held liable for then obviously the result of them electrocuting themselves and not being competent in what they're doing in repair. Um, so, you know, things are quite often designed in theory for our safety and for our benefit to not be openable. Um, irons are another example. And actually, when, when we get a base, we've, we've decided to have a bit of a pact because um, working out how to open different designs of irons is a bit of a nightmare. And you'll often end up breaking it because of the hard plastic shells. And then you discover where there's a hidden hidden screw or you know, just a bit, a specific part that you had to um, manoeuvre. Um, and, you know, it wouldn't be so bad if if these manufacturers provided a brilliant service that meant we could all send it back to them for them to fix it. But, it, you know, most of them don't provide that. So we're actually going to be just collecting the old irons that we can't fix. And we're going to start, you know, creating some kind of uh, repository of this is how you get into this make of iron without breaking it. Um, because, yeah, in theory, quite a lot of stuff you can fix internally quite a lot of the components can be relatively simple but if you can't open the darn thing in the first place um yeah you don't have much chance of repairing it do you want to give us a bit of an idea of some of the things that can be repaired yes it's not all doing good <laughs> so, um and we do, as i said we don't just do electronics so you know we have people that fix jewellery, especially costume jewellery. We've got um, people that fix toys and some of our favourite bits. I mean, lots of people have watched the repair shop on the BBC and um, that's a very amazing kind of setup where they restore lots of older things, you know, with amazing craftspeople doing that. And that's not what we do, but it, we love it when there's 
sort of sentimental stories of people bringing things in. So we had a guy who had bought this radio for his wife when they were courting, which was like they'd been married for 70 years when he bought it in. Um, and some of those good old radios, you know, are really, really fixable. Um, so um, there's toasters we can often fix elements of kettles actually kettles are relatively good at fixing um because they're, they're relatively simple inside as well um, we get lots of kids toys that come in um but as again as long as we can open them um we can fix stuff like that it's it's really 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 diverse the things we get in um and we we collect all our data on kind of which things we can repair and which things we can't we feed that into a data set that that um, ultimately has community repair data from around the world um, and I think our stats are around we probably fix around 67% of the electrical items that come to us um, and then it just goes up obviously fabric things we can normally fix most things um, jewellery equally is quite high and some of the sort of more general mechanical things as well we can fix so um, it's not all bad news um, yeah, so in this country, we don't have anything specifically. I mean, you could check out <laughs> French websites, I guess, to see if they sell it in this country. I mean, the first thing I always say to anyone before, if they've got to buy something new is actually, first of all, do you need to buy it? So can you borrow it? Uh, you know, is it something that you're not going to be using all the time? And actually a family member, a friend, a work colleague has got that you can actually share and, and use because that's going to be by far the most uh you know economically financially money saving option for you as well as um for the planet um and then i think it's always worth looking at um if you're buying things new to to be checking out their websites and seeing you know what kind of repair service have they got um a quick google um with um you know fixing x will come up with forums full of people either saying, oh, this was impossible to fix, it was a waste of time, or great, this is how I fix those kind of things. Um, but at this point, you know, in the UK, we don't have, sadly, a nice a nice way to, to check how repairable things are. And in which case, I'd say, like, you know, sign restart projects, petition, uh, contact your local MP, raise these issues, and, um, you know, try and get it up the government's agenda at this point. Do you want to just give us a little bit more on that? So, you know, specifically, you know, I live in Brighton, um, Jonathan's in London. What what could we be specifically doing to to make repairability, openability, durability more something that that is more available to us when we're buying things and owning things? Um so as I said, the quick thing, so check out um, the Restart Project petition and sign that. And that calls for, you know, it, it does say to the government, you know, we appreciate you have started thinking about some things, so such as washing machines, dishwashers, fridges, TVs, you know, but that we need them to go a lot further. Um, the petition that they've currently got is asking for three very specific things. One is that any repairability measures include everybody so that, um, you know, when some of these people do say, okay, yes, we will provide spare parts and repair manuals, it's not just for the professionals, it's also for, um, you know, DIYers and community repair groups. So it calls for that. Um, there's also the commitment to um, 
bring the right to repair to things like smartphones, tablets, tablets and laptops, which we really need just because the, the amount that we get through, it seems, as a, a country as Europe. Um, and as I've mentioned already, that kind of removing or reducing VAT on repairs would make a massive difference. So there's, you know, sign a petition, get in front of your local MPs and there's a there's a massive appetite. There was a YouGov poll last year, I think it was a year before, that you know showed that eighty, I think it was eighty one percent of the UK public are absolutely behind the concept of the right to repair. I mean, it, it's it's just a no brainer on, on every point, but people knowing about it um, isn't so high. So if you can get conversations with MPs, um, that's that's really important. How do you um, actually do that? So you can. Um, now I'm trying to think what the website is. There is a website, and I will find it afterwards. And you can put it in the notes. Sure put thing. it in the notes. But yeah, there's a very handy little tool that tells you who your MP is on a website. It will tell you instantly who it is. So you could email them. Um, you can um, go and knock on their door if they have an office. And you know, our local MP, I know where his office is on a high street close by. Um, you know, catch them at events when they come door knocking, looking for votes. Say, oh, while I'm here, <laughs> while you're here. Let me tell you about this. Um, the Reset Project also, um, so we had a fix fest a number of years ago and they created this thing called the Manchester Declaration. Um, we've also got MPs that have signed that, which calls on policymakers and manufacturers to, to do some of what we're talking about. So, you, you know, there's, there's additional information, um, that you could send their way if you're really passionate about it and wanted to, to get on it. Um, and the other thing is, you know, get along to your local repair projects um so whether that's you've got something broken and you want some help to fix it or if you want to give a bit of time to helping it so you know there's a vast array of community repair groups um, that happen across the country um i spend quite a lot of my time at the minute helping others um, across hampshire and wessex set up it's it, it's a really um exciting project that people are really passionate about starting so you know get along find out where your local one is um, you can go to the repair cafe foundation um, website and there's a whole list of them or um, go to the restart project again they've got um, a list of uk ones specifically um, but that would be another thing is to to just become more connected with people that are doing repair and, and get stuff repaired yourself because there's nothing better for MPs as well uh, than personal stories. You know, it's the, it's the data and the personal stories that captures people. And they go, yes, this is ridiculous. Why are we not improving things on this front? Yes, yes. And, and it's a global movement, isn't it, also? So the listeners in other countries, there's, there's repair cafes in Australia and Europe and, and America. Yeah. yeah, India. They're on every continent. Yeah. And, you know, there's different campaigns in, in different parts of the world around the right to repair. So there's a, a strong movement in the US. There's a European one. I'm sure there are bits in other, other parts of the world as well. Well, I'm really keen. But there's one more thing I think we should ask. But wait, there's more. <laughs> how, how step by step? would somebody go about setting up a repair cafe near them? Hopefully not in their living room. Yeah. Although, as I say, they could be all different sizes. So some people do them, you know, just as part of a library or in a little cafe, literally a cafe, you could set up a little sewing group or something like that. Um, I think the key is, first of all, to, to find a couple of other people that are interested in helping you and get along to the closest one to you or, the, um, you know, 
platform that's accessible to you. Um, we're all a really friendly bunch. When you sign up to the Repair Cafe Foundation as well, you can get like download a whole pack which gives you really a really handy tool on you know for example what what to look for in a venue um what to do about marketing and spreading the word what your repairers might want to bring with their you know as tools to um to bring with them for sessions that kind of thing so there's lots of information like that um and we also all agree to support other people in setting them up so as i say i'm constantly contacted by different people um and i'm always you know, chat them through things, share documents that we've got, um, explain how to cover insurance or set up as organisations. Um, we've also got a community repair network that's been set up um, in the UK and that's got um, sort of founding members that are really happy to be contacted. So whether you're in the Midlands or whether you're um, in other places as well, um, you know, around the globe, go to the Repair Cafe Foundation and, and find uh, local ones. But it just takes a bit of enthusiasm and start small, you know, start with whatever it is you've got. Um, lots of people just start with whatever it is the skill from the initial group of people. So it might be that you just start with bikes. It might be that you start with sewing. It might be that you start with electrical. But then you sort of attract different people um, to, to come and, and do different elements. So um, give it a go and, and just create it the size and shape that's right for your community as well you know something that we do here in a, a large city is going to be very different to um you know a group of little villages um somewhere else so think about how you just tailor it and what works for your community but give it a go thank you that's inspiring and you're right jonathan it's time take it away oh do you know what i really so i've been listening to some of your other podcasts and i've really struggled with this question thinking about it and earlier I thought you know I think the issue is I'm not sure I want to look up to people which sounds really obvious uh, sounds really strange I totally admire people and I'm really excited by seeing what they do and inspired by that but I think there's a real pressure with being looked up to or looking up and I'm really into everyone is worth loads of stuff and like everyone is amazing and brilliant um, in their different spheres um, so in different ways you know I'm inspired by my kids I'm inspired by um, people that you know are carers and uh, have helped us get through the, the worst of the pandemic in recent years um, I'm inspired by the people that campaign on repair and create repair cafes in their little area but I'm inspired I would say rather than look up to so I don't know if that's cheating to get out the answer but <laughs> I think that's totally allowable. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, do you know what? Just the other day in half term, um, I had a re friend visiting and we went to our new little local community cinema and we watched Belfast. I don't know if you've seen it. Oh my goodness, it was amazing. It was beautifully shot, but it was really poignant kind of looking at conflict coming to your own street in, um, in Northern Ireland. And, um, I highly recommend it to anyone. I was, I was really blown away watching it. Um, and book-wise at the minute, uh, I repeatedly am rereading um, a book on nonviolent communication by Marshall Rosenberg, um, which is just applicable to all of life. Uh, it's about kind of repairing, I think, ourselves and our relationships with others, that sort of nonviolent approach to things. Um, so... It's not particularly related to repair, but 
yeah, non-violence. I'm really interested in the minute. We'll definitely put that in the bookshop. I mean, obviously, with the exception of the repair movement, <laughs> which obviously I'm very excited about, uh, and library things, which you know we're also in the process of setting up. Um, other movements. Um, within our own city, uh, there's a real movement around restorative practice, um, which is sort of similar to repair in the sense of, you know, what we've been talking about today with repair is about um, you know, being gentle on the planet on, and on our bank balances and the sort of justice issues linked with that. And restorative practice is a really, um, I'm finding, fascinating way of sort of bringing people together when there's, you know, disagreements. Um, really interesting to think about when you've got kids and teenagers and relationships there, but in all avenues of stuff and obviously with the conflict around the world right now I'm really interested in that restorative practice movement um, and the other thing I'd, I particularly love which maybe fits into movement and uh, book I don't know if you guys have heard of positive news um, publication and that sort of positive journalism I just find brilliant you know um, the news is a really depressing uh, place to spend time <laughs> because it's not what seems to sell newspapers etc but Positive news, I find brilliant for hearing just of amazing work that people are doing in different things. So I think anything that's kind of spreading the word of the amazing grassroots, especially grassroots projects that are happening um, around the world on all different uh, parts of life, I am loving that kind of positive journalism. That's, mm, that's me too. More. We both get yeah. the positive news, don't we, um, Jonathan? And, and yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and it's surprising. We, uh, I didn't expect there to be so many great things happening, which just shows how um, immersion in negative stories creates this warped view in me of what's actually happening in the world, right? Yeah, totally. And, you know, I mean, my kids really enjoyed because it just sits, you know, on our table in the lounge and now I love the fact that they read all these projects you know about kindness and I mean they've seen everything in there recently you know projects to do with drug rehabilitation and housing and homelessness and it's so great to hear positive things going on and not just the endless negativity that you get from most of the media outlets um and it's uplifting and it, it gets, I think it gets people motivated to go, hang on, yeah, these people are doing it. Maybe I can do something too. So, yeah, quick yeah, shout out to them. Check out Positive News. Indeed. And quick <laughs> shout not out. Commission. <laughs> Neither are we. And uh, <laughs> quick shout out to them. Um, Positive News and reading that magazine was one of the things that inspired me to say, hey, Jonathan, we could have a podcast about fixing things. <laughs> oh, um, I'm feeling a bit tech fatigue. I'm, so I'm not the most techie of people. I am into tech for, you know, solving the problem if I need it. I've really enjoyed things like um, the Tito. I don't know if you've come across that. That's brilliant for, uh, we use it for bookings uh, nowadays for a pair cafe and that's been really helpful. Um, and things where we can kind of collaborate together, I've enjoyed. But I have to confess, I'm actually sort of always going the opposite way. So um, a bit like, you know negative media and all that kind of thing i found that there's so much um this you can spend so much time being surrounded by tech and apps and things that are allegedly going to help make life easier um and i just find they're really time consuming so i'm almost doing a bit more detox i've turned off most of my notifications for things i've 
being religious and unsubscribing to things. Um, and I'm just trying to find a bit more time to be able to focus and be in the moment without being distracted by these helpful um, tech pieces. And actually, that's yeah. a really good point because the um, the EU legislation on GDPR, um, general data protection legislation, or something like that, right, Jonathan? Um, that that has brought in the whole unsubscribe button, hasn't it? And um, what a wonderful thing that's been for our inboxes. So, um, little tip for anybody listening: if you find that you get email that you don't read that just annoys you, um, then at the bottom of every single one of those emails within Europe, certainly, but also in Australia and New Zealand and in the States and Canada, um, there will be an unsubscribe button. And if there is not an unsubscribe button and you are a Gmail user, you can report them as spam, clicking the report spam button. And that makes a huge difference, doesn't it, to the noise that comes in on email? Yeah, because there is so much stuff in there and lots of it is important stuff in it, but, but we just, we're only individual humans. Um, we just don't have the capacity for the amount that the World Wide Web and its beauty thinks that we can, can hold. So I think for my own mental health and, and for just being more strategic in, and purposeful in what I want to do, it's been really useful to take a bit of a step back from all the amazing things that there are out there, but being realistic. Um, I'm a bit kinder to myself. <laughs> Just the one. <laughs> Just the one. <laughs> My husband's snoring. <laughs> Just the one. <laughs> Can I have that one? Um, oh, my goodness. Um, Switching to natural bed products might help. Latex and wool. Uh, yeah, I've already done that. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. <laughs> Let, we won't analyse my poor husband's story. Bless him, he deserves to breathe. Problem busters, <laughs> <like>, yeah. <laughs> um, gosh, one thing. Um, I think, I think maybe it kind of fits in a bit with what I've just said about tech, actually. Maybe just people pausing and engaging brain a bit more before they do something so whether that's what they say what they type on a social media platform um how they scream at someone out of a car window um what they choose to buy um what they choose to borrow instead of buy those kind of things i think what i'd like to change is that ability to just slow down in the moment a bit before before reacting or doing things uh which i think would then lead to you know obviously the world peace that I'd like to have and uh, all the other answers that would go with what's the one thing in the world. Um, but I think maybe just being a bit more mindful and um, having the opportunity to pause a moment before we do things uh, or say things would be lovely. I think the key, obviously, is going to be repair is an option. Uh, I think even if that's something that people become more aware of um, and that's going to be at different stages for different people so whether that's that you know you're right at the extreme and you want to set up a repair cafe or uh, a community repair project you know through to the next thing I buy maybe I'm going to see how repairable it is or something's broken maybe I'm going to try and fix it before I replace it um, so just that that awareness that repair is an option um, and that you've got something to to say in that year you've got a choice to to try and get it repaired you've got a choice to contact your mp you've got a choice to you know tweet a, about 
a product that's broken and how disappointed you are and that the company could would continue to have your custom if they made better projects. You know, the more that we can get it up the uh, agenda of policymakers, but also the manufacturers, the more we can push back. Um, would be great. So that would be the take home. Just think about repair. It's an option. Nicely put. And how can people find out a bit more about you and the projects that you are involved in? Um, the World Wide Web. We've just been saying maybe don't spend too much time on, but um, you know, uh, if you do a search for Repair Cafe Portsmouth, you can get in touch via that. Um, I'm also on Twitter and things as South Sea Mum. You can tell when I set that account up, obviously. Um, but yeah, and if anyone is interested in, in setting up community repair cafes, then definitely um, drop me an email or get in touch via social media or um, the website. I'm really happy to put you in touch with someone more local to you or you know have a chat on a, a Zoom or a phone call. That's awesome. Thank you. I feel really inspired and I'm mentally, don't know about you, Jonathan, going through the things that are shoved under the bed or in a cupboard and on the maybe we should replace that soon list. And I'm thinking, do I really need to? Yeah. Repair them or give them to a project that can repair them and use them for something else. Yeah. Do you know, mine's the same. I, uh, it was, uh, the work uh, place was upgrading the laptops and, and we all um, took on laptops at cost. Yeah, it was a good thing to do. Claire, thank you so much. It's, uh, it's, it's been really, really inspiring and really interesting and, um, and it actually makes me want to come down to Portsmouth and have a look at some of these projects. So we will let you know when we are in town. Brilliant. Come visit any time. <laughs> but wait, there's one more for the young ones. Yeah, I think so. I think it might actually just be Problem Busters podcast. Um, awesome. So thanks for tuning in. Look after each other. And we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.